As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Leah Williamson waited 291 days to start again for Arsenal. And then this happens. History for West Ham United! victory over Arsenal in the WSL era. So why didn't the England captain's ACL comeback go to plan? And what does it mean for the title race? I'm Sophie Penny and from The Athletic, this is Full Time Europe. This week, I'm with The Athletic's women's football editor, Chloe Morgan. Hi, Chloe. Hi, Soph. And it's our Arsenal reporter, Art de Rocher. Hi, Art. Good afternoon, Sophie, and hello, Chloe, as well. We also must point you to Daniel Taylor's reporting for The Athletic. He broke the news of why Jonathan Morgan was sacked by Sheffield United. It's a really important story. Do give that a read. Later, we'll be answering your questions and also chatting about the first WSL manager sacking of the season. I think the timing was a shock. I uh, sat in on Melissa Phillips's press conference at 2.30 on a Thursday. And then the club statement came at 6.45 on Thursday saying she was sacked. But today we're focusing on Leah Williamson's return to Arsenal's starting lineup and her side losing 2-1 to West Ham. Arsenal went into the second half in control of the game. They were a goal up thanks to Alessia Russo. But West Ham came out on the front foot. They scored two goals in eight minutes. There was a penalty for Viviane Asayi after Seth Catley fouled Rico Uecki and a half volley from Howard Sissoko. Arsenal had... 23 shots in total, but they just couldn't find that equaliser. How important is this result for both sides? Chloe, I'll give you on West Ham first because they did come out winners. Yeah, I think the result is massive for them. Obviously, the first time they've ever beaten Arsenal. And it wasn't, you know, one of those results that was very close or, you know, they they got Arsenal on an off day. Actually, it was the pure talent, grit and determination of West Ham which saw through that result. I mean, they all seemed to have each other's back. There were so many episodes of emergency defending and for me it was the Hayashi sliding tackle on Vivian Miedemar when she was through on goal I mean the precision of it it was just inch perfect and uh, prevented sort of quite a a critical time goal which I'm assuming Miedemar would have bedded but um, I just think um, the result in itself obviously takes them much further away from Bristol City six points clear now of the bottom of the table which is 
huge because they are a team that we have kind of talked about, you know, time and time again as you know, been in, in and around the relegation zone at various parts in in the you know the last few seasons. So for me, it feels like once you've taken down a, a top four side, there's a, a distinction between you know the potential that you can now achieve, and they've sort of been building in the right direction. I think the new signings that they've got in January as well, I think, have really helped that confidence. So you know, they've still got United and Chelsea to face in in March and and Man City in April, but. Now I think they're going to be going to those games thinking they can probably take a point, if not three, off of off the top four sides. Yeah, it might give them confidence at home as well because their last home WSL win was 16 months ago. So <laughs> breaking that uh, that record must have felt felt pretty good for them. And um, as you say, we'll have to wait and see whether they can continue that form. But Art for Arsenal, they're now third, three points behind Man City, six points behind Chelsea. Is this the end of their title challenge? Can we say that yet? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's too early to say that with it being February, but it does feel like it. Obviously, with three losses, it's, it's a league where you can't really drop any points. Even if you're drawing games too often, those are killers. So if you're not picking up any points, it is really difficult to make a case for you to be in in that charge that title charge come the end of the season so from that perspective it was obviously a massive result in in a negative way for Arsenal but also I know Chloe brought up March fixtures for West Ham but when you look at Arsenal's in that month as well or before that even they have to play Manchester United then Tottenham and Chelsea away all back to back in the WSL Um, that's not even factoring in a game against uh, Manchester City in May as well. So it is really tough because now there is a very little room for error for them going um, into the back end of the season. They've lost more than two games and no previous WSL champion has lost more than two games. Do you think that it's appropriate to bring up that figure or do you think that the league's changed and it's no longer relevant? I think we're getting to the stage now. It could be this season, it could be next season, where that trend will be bucked. I think because of the, you know, when you look at the sort of talent that's happening in the midsection, you've got Spurs, you've got Liverpool, you know, Manchester United kind of sitting in that sort of mid bit now. And any single one of those teams is likely to cause or to start causing, you know, consistent upsets. They're not going to be teams that, you know, Man City and Arsenal and Chelsea are going to be looking at and thinking, okay, well, you know, we're likely to get points off of these. These are ones that they really have to set up for the challenge of making sure, like Art said, that they're not walking away with just a point or or even less. So I think um, it's a good stat for now, but I think it will change fairly soon. Arsenal captain Leah Williamson making a return to the starting lineup. That's been the big talking point. Art, what did you make of her performance? Yeah, it wasn't really a half where she had to do much, um, obviously, with the way... The first half panned out. Arsenal had much more of the ball. There were a few little moments where she had to get involved. But aside from that, it was almost just getting minutes back into her legs and seeing how she did. Obviously, she came off at half time and that was pre-planned. Jonas Edeval explained that afterwards, which is understandable given how long she's been out for. With these injuries, it does take a few weeks, I'd say, maybe even months to get back to your proper self, maybe even a different version of you because you might not be the same player, but you can still be a very useful one. So it'll be interesting to see how many minutes she gets in this kind of 
this block of games uh, and then hopefully moving forward she's able to to complete 90 minutes throughout the rest of the season. I wonder if her coming off actually had an impact on Arsenal. I wasn't sure about that. Obviously, you had Manuela Zinsberger kind of punching the ball out and that led to Sissoko's goal. So I just, I wonder if the fact that they have to swap out their centre-half halfway through does unsettle them a little bit. I don't know what you think about that, Art. (laughs) For me, I I just saw that as purely a goalkeeping error I know I think Chloe's probably more qualified <laughs> than, than me to um to pass judgment on that but yeah I don't know what Chloe thought about it <laughs> well Art now you ask um <laughs> I think um I've, I've honestly I've got to agree with you I think um you know where the ball is delivered there's there's a couple of players sort of heading towards her but she's not in a you know particularly overcrowded situation and I think, obviously, I wasn't at the game, but I was speaking to a couple of people who were, and they were saying the wind was a massive factor. I think at that stadium, it's quite exposed. So I don't think maybe that's done it justice. I mean, especially it was a whipped in ball anyway, but I think it probably was coming at her at quite some pace because of the additional wind elements. So I'm going to try and give her a, a balanced view of this, but I think the height of the ball is where I had the most criticism because it wasn't a, a lofted in ball that you can kind of, you know, get a punch to and, Uh, should be clearing like that because you don't think you're going to get your hands to it. It was very much kind of at mid-chest height, which you would expect a keeper to be able to very comfortably claim, either by jumping up and sort of, you know, absorbing it into your stomach or by taking it into your hands in a kind of W shape. So where the height of the ball really killed her is that she couldn't get any kind of air to it. So it ended up, you know, going straight directly into the ground. And and then it becomes a 50-50 situation. You know, who gets it first? And you know, she was just very, very unfortunate that Sissoko, of all people, the West Ham defender, was the first person to get it and scored an absolute worldie off the back. So, yeah, she definitely could have done better in that situation. I've got to, I've, you know, I'll be fair, but it's I've, I've got to be critical of it. Yeah. One other side we might need to be critical of is Arsenal's attack. Idwell said that they created enough chances to win the game, but didn't put the ball away. And they started the second half slow art what more could arsenal have done to to finish they just looked a bit hesitant whenever they got into positions where they needed to make quick decisions so even lacasse herself she did really well but there were a few moments where i thought when she was coming inside off the right just swing a left foot at it and see what happens Whereas she just kept, almost kept running, kept running, and then she's out of time and has to pass the ball. So I think moments like that were a bit frustrating. But then also in the first half, they just have to take their chances, really. I know Chloe mentioned the, the amazing tackle that stopped Miedemar, um, but she also, I think, had a really massive chance where she hit the crossbar. Maybe she overcompensated a little bit with. I guess the pure power she put into that finish in particular, but then also Alessia Russo had quite a few chances before she eventually scored. So it's something that Edeval's spoken about before in terms of them almost creating so many chances before they eventually score, but then also not conceding many chances, but the chances they concede are so big and so dangerous that you're going to get hurt either way. So how do you actually make those margins bigger for yourself? 
A good optostat from Jesse Parker Humphreys' full-time column. Arsenal have missed 60% of their big chances created this season. Chelsea have missed 50% and Man City 57%. So it kind of, that speaks to what you're saying, Art, about missing those big chances. Uh, There were a few shouts for penalties from Arsenal, a handball in the first half, and then that uh, challenge late on from Katrina Gori on Chloe Lacasse. What do you make of them? Both confused me (laughs) um the first one it just confused me because it seemed it like it hit so many hands and I don't understand how that isn't a penalty even if one of them wasn't on purpose that (laughs) I mean there was another set of hands that touched the ball there so that confused me um with the one that Arsenal conceded I, I kind of understand that one a little bit more just because I couldn't really make out whether it was inside or outside the box. Tell, so yeah. so you kind of have to trust the referee's judgment on that because I looked at it, I don't know how many times, and I just could not figure it out. The The third one, I think, is Lacasse, um, yeah. which I, I thought that was a clear penalty. She's come inside and her feet have been taken away from her. So I, I thought that was a penalty, but... These are the types of, I guess, discussions and debates where we're going to have until there is VAR in the WSL, which I know is so much more difficult to do than in the Premier League because of the stadiums that um, the games are being played at. So once the decisions have been made, there isn't much, I guess, complaining anyone can do uh, because it's not going to change anything. But um, yeah, that's what I thought on each of those. Yeah, it is what it is, isn't it? Chloe, we have to talk about the winning team. We haven't spoken enough about them. And you mentioned uh, their new signings. What impact do you think that's had? Because a lot of people were saying that they did the best in the transfer window on paper. Yeah, definitely. I think um, even when you sort of look at Mewis and the kind of impact that she's had, I mean, it was that that initial funny game for West Ham where the sort of the wind again was sort of, you know, problematic for them. And, you know, she managed to get that, that assist early doors. And, you know, she is a big name. She has you know, just come off a, of a World Cup last year. Yes, the, the US didn't do too well, but she's a very experienced player or was a very experienced player in the, in the NWSL. So I think, um, you know, superstar silence like that, not only is the quality there, but I think it's just the name and it sort of gives you that that sense of getting some of your ego back, I think, that West Ham is a name to be reckoned with and they can attract that kind of talent. And similarly, I suppose, with uh, Zdorsky as well, another sort of, you know, international as well with, with Canada and you know, she's had a great time at Spurs, but wasn't sort of starting to get the game time that she had originally been getting. She was captain there as well. So another kind of, you know, leader again at West Ham. And I think they've that's what they've really needed. I think they have been, you know, slightly directionless in a way. Um, and Ueki as well. I think she's been absolutely outstanding for them. And, you know, players that have been with the club a little bit longer and someone like Sissoko, I mean, she put in an absolute shift. Mm. I mean, the defensive prowess of her, and you know, being in the right place at the right time and, um, yeah, I feel like there's a couple of things starting to come together with Rianne Skinner's squad. And, you know, you look at the amount, the short amount of time that she's actually had there. I can kind of see the squad now, you know, building, not being in the relegation zone, but starting to really embed themselves in that midsection of the table. So I'm actually excited for them. I think 2024 could be, you know, new year, new me for, for West Ham. <laughs> I was impressed by Gori as well. I thought she was brilliant. She's 31 year old midfielder from Australia. And she actually led the team in goal-creating actions, successful take-ons, tackles, progressive passes and carries in that game. I think that's pretty impressive from her. And 
Also, her child was sick all over the car. Did you guys see this before before she arrived <laughs> at the not. game? So she posted on, on Instagram that her child was sick all over the back seat of her car when she arrived at the stadium. So she had to go straight home, bathe her, put her to bed, and she made it back for the warm-up and still perform like that. So absolutely hats I'm off to, <laughs> to Katrina Curry for that. Really, really impressive. And I can't wait to see what more West Ham have to offer. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for that one, Art. Cheers. Thanks for having me. I'll, I'll sub in or sub out, I should say, for, for Charlotte and um, hopefully see you guys soon. Thank you. So a good surprise for one female WSL manager and a bad one for another. More on that next. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. You're listening to Full-Time Europe from The Athletic. Let's bring in The Athletic's women's football reporter, Charlotte Harper. Hi, Charlotte. Hello, Sophie. You've swapped booths very effectively with art there. (laughs) A little quick smooth changeover, I love it. Super subs. Yeah, super subs. Right, so we're talking Melissa Phillips here, the first WSL manager to be sacked this season, 10 months after being hired by Brighton. Charlotte, what was your initial reaction? Did you see this coming? I think the timing was a shock. I uh, sat in on Melissa Phillips's press conference at 2.30 on a Thursday and then the club statement came at 6.45 on Thursday uh, saying she was sacked and then Mikey Harris, the new interim manager, was put up for a press conference on the Friday at 12.30. So timing definitely regarding the decision the data shows the team is stagnating and I'm sure we'll get on to that next. Chloe, what do you make of that reaction? It was kind of, you know, like Charlotte was saying, it was quite a shock for all of us. And I think it's it'd be interesting to see sort of what the expectations, you know, were in black and white on Mel Phillips when she first started the job. Because I think you can only expect so much with the budget that you have, with the players that you have. You know, you can't achieve, you know, a WSL top four overnight. And, um, you know, it was quite funny, really. I mean, you know, leading on from Charlotte's point about the sort of, the, the timing of the decision because they've brought in interim man- manager Mikey Harris who's the sort of under 21s academy manager and it sounds like he was told very last minute as well um he was saying in the press conference on on Friday that you know he was sort of dealing with some last day January transfer deals for the under 21s and then was literally told a few seconds later that he'd be moving over to the women's side and, you know and he was saying you know I'm not an absolute expert in the WSL and you know it, no one's expecting him to be it wasn't it wasn't his job until um you know a couple of days ago you know and he was asked sort of how much contact he'd had with the women's side before being told and you know it was very minimal he could only really throw to the fact that the academy and the uh, the women's training ground were quite close together so he's had you know quite a lot on his on his plate in the last 36 hours he's seen kind of, them in the distance <laughs> yeah he's kind of you know waved to them across the hill so yeah I, I do I do feel sorry for him that you know he wasn't given more sort of preparation and lead up time and you know that came for you know it's quite a shock for him because yeah it's not it's not a small job a weird one as well because Mikey Harris didn't know the team news when the press asked and nobody was really able to answer the questions of why Phillips had been sacked and so you have this kind of data-driven approach from 
Brighton, who seem on the outside a very efficiently run club, but the manner in which they did it was quite chaotic and the two just don't marry up. It does seem like quite a shock, but you say data-driven approach there, Charlotte. I mean, what does the data show? Was it the right thing to do, however strangely it might have been handled? So I think, you know, Brighton second from bottom, goal difference of minus 16. They're on the same number of points as the teams above them, Everton and West Ham. But one thing is really interesting. If you look at their XG difference, so that means the quality of chances creating going forward versus the quality of chances that you are conceding. And Brighton have the worst XG difference per 90 minutes in the league. So minus 1.21. That's worse than bottom of the league Bristol. So this is often a better indicator of where teams are rather than their league position uh, as it shows the kind of process of a team rather than just the points on the board. But if you're conceding one goal's worth of chances more than you're creating, you're in the negative zone per game. You're not going to win much. So I think Brighton have looked at the points on the board and the performances and seen, you know, there there is a point of stagnation. Where is the progress here? And it seems that they've looked at that data and thought, right, enough's enough, you're gone. Do you think that the targets that these coaches are being set are actually attainable given the amount of resources that people put in? And also, what have you made of of uh, Melissa Phillips's performance? Uh, I think it's really hard to say what I've made of Melissa Phillips's performance because I don't think she's been in the role long enough to really give a, a sort of true and accurate reflection of what she could achieve with the club. I think, um, you know, there was a, a sort of guidance or plan from Brighton a few years back saying, you know, by 2024... They were sort of looking to be, you know, quite ambitiously in and within and around the sort of top four in the WSL. And I think I think you need to adapt, you know, what is actually realistically achievable with with the team when you have the squad that you do. And I think um, getting Brighton, who have been in and around the relegation zone for the past few seasons up to the top four is going to take more than just a year or two years or three years. I mean, even Man United, I mean, they've been in the, the league now for four years. It's taken that long to kind of cement themselves in the top four. And that's because they've got themselves into a position where they're consistently, you know, really knocking on the door for points with the top three, but Brighton aren't in that position yet. So whilst they might have a, you know, a great new facility and whilst some investment might be there, I don't think the sign-ins and the the, the players that they, they have necessarily are sort of aligned with that ambition to be a top four club just yet. And I think they've also seen through quite a big period of transition. I mean, they've had, you know, 11 signings in the past year and they've only just sort of let go of some of the sort of old Brighton guards, you know, your Kayleigh Greens, your Victoria Williams, your, you know, Megan Walsh's, Daniel Carter. Um, they've all kind of left the side. So I think there's that kind of old Brighton. And I think this could be a refresh. I'm just really gutted for Melissa Phillips that she wasn't given more time to sort of see, at least give her a season, at least give her a full season to, you know, see what she could achieve. And she did so well at, at London City Lionesses. Stuff like that takes time. So yeah, disappointing. What must she be thinking as well, Chloe? Because she, you know, guided London City Lionesses to top spot in the championship, then moved back to the US to be Angel City's assistant. And then in April 2023, moves back to England to be named Brighton. It's, do you think she'll be kicking herself thinking, why on earth did I make so many changes? I think she'll probably be thinking, maybe I'll go back to the US. 
I mean, we've got so many players who are sort of gravitating back over to the or, or being signed or being attracted to the NWSL and and manager wise too. I mean, we've you know Hayes is going out there at the end of the year. We've got Casey Stoney's been out there for a couple of years. Juan Amaros is is out there and he went over from from Spurs not too long ago. So. Giraldes going from Barcelona as well. Absolutely, yeah. There's, um, I think we need to be a little bit wary of the, the sort of emergence of the NWSL as this kind of really attractive prospect for managers. So you know, Brighton don't want her. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, given her experience out in America, I, I, I think she'll be potentially snapped up at some point, but maybe not until the end of the season. I understand that Brighton's point of view regarding performances and results. Eleven players in, so they've spent a lot of money. But those players have obviously not gelled and that takes time. And so the manager is in the firing line. But I just don't think you can chuck money at the facilities and the recruitment. Doesn't mean it's going to all click straight away. I think Tony Bloom, Brighton's owner chairman, spent £8.5 on that elite performance centre. And they're planning a purpose-built stadium for their women's team as well. But the objective to go from 11th last year to then aiming for top four, surely you have to grow into a team that is going to attract top four players that want to join. And I suppose you have that middle ground. Where kind of Spurs are Liverpool and that, that's where Brighton should be aiming for then in terms of consistent performances. But they just seem too inconsistent. Do we know who the key candidates are to replace her yet or is it too soon to say? Yeah, we've got them shortlist. One, two, three, already done. Uh, well, I've heard um, that it could be Frank Lampard. Frank Lampard's name's kicking around the Chelsea squad at the moment. So um, no. they could be eyeing up both. <laughs> it's, in all seriousness, I think we've, we've seen Chelsea and the, the dearth of managers actually available. There's no outstanding, there's no standout candidate for the Chelsea job. Mark Parsons left Washington Spirit last year. He's back in England, so he'd definitely be high up the list. But I think, although it may seem the way in which Brighton have done this is a rash response, they will have their recruitment analytics. And uh, I know they used Nolan Partners to recruit beforehand. So they will be analysing their options carefully. Right, I want to broaden this out from Brighton a little bit, so we'll chat about the lack of female coaches in the WSL next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. You're listening to Full Time Europe with Sophie Penny. Sophie Penny, Charlotte Harper and Chloe Morgan here with you on Full Time Europe. Cressner from Lister, Mitchell Green. Is it surprising that more managers haven't been sacked yet this season in the WSL? There have been three in the Premier League, plus obviously Jürgen Klopp saying he's leaving. So what do you make of that, Charlotte? Uh, I think Rianne Skinner was probably skating on thin ice before those two wins, given West Ham's struggle. They'd only won once up until Christmas. But if, if you look at, for example, Hayes' tenure over 11 years and Chelsea have given her time and, and patience and the opportunity to make mistakes and learn from them, then I quite like the consistency of the manager because... 
I don't think firing someone is just going to be an immediate fix and then everything is fine. We spoke about this on regarding Ineos's investment and, and Mark Skinner with Manchester United. Yes, the manager is the face of the club and a, an ambassador and can, especially with fan engagement, is so, so important. But if there is a whole range of backroom staff and strategy and recruitment that goes on behind the scenes as well. Uh, so, yeah, no, I don't want to see the, the manager merry-go-round that it is in the men's game. But with more at stake, with more money invested clubs will want to see a return on that investment and it will become more of a cutthroat industry definitely I think it's actually you know part and parcel of being a manager you have to be in place when times are tough it's not just about taking teams to the next level it's actually growing that resilience with the team so that you do become someone like Chelsea that you know how to react in situations when times are hard when back-to-back losses are happening when you do have to fight and every every point in game matters so let managers be in difficult situations for them to problem solve and get themselves out of it in the same way that you expect players to do. Obviously, Brighton haven't done that, which means that now only a third of WSL teams have a female coach. Emma Hayes did a great interview with the BBC saying that it costs about £10,000 to do it at UEFA Pro Licence. So women may need support to help afford the qualifications. Only 21 women in England have that pro licence and that there could be a need for minimum standards around hiring female coaches. What do you think about that, Chloe? I know I was speaking to a few players who were sort of looking into going into, you know, coaching and managerial roles after their playing careers had ended. And, you know, a few of those players were PFA members and the PFA offers a lot of sort of um, subsidised courses uh, to sort of get into your CB and and pro licence. So that's not too bad. But again, obviously, with the championship players not being a part of the PFA setup, they will have to incur costs like that. And I think it's not just sort of women who are sort of facing challenges and barriers into getting into the game. I think that the number of applications actually has risen quite substantially in terms of going in to do your pro licence. I think there's a bit of a backlog as well from from COVID as well. But I think it's just underrepresented groups just generally trying to get into the profession. I think, you know, there's not loads and loads of money in the women's game. I think, you know, £10,000 for for any person at, you know, coaching in the WSL or or championship, that'll be you know, a substantial part of their salary if the club aren't subsidising or supporting in, in some way. So it just feels like a bit of a wasted, a waste of opportunity and a waste of potential talent to have such a massive financial barrier into, you know, doing something that will effectively help the game and encourage people to, people who have played the game at a very good level to get into it and sort of help the next generation and give them the kind of knowledge and advice that they had going up through the games. But it's also presenting... Uh, female coaches with the opportunity and not thrusting them in straight into the limelight but having those steps that you go through whether that's in the backroom staff or assistants so you learn and also the environments you're putting women into making sure that that's a safe and welcoming and an inclusive environment but we know how male dominated and intimidating the football industry can be can you get women involved in coaching from a younger age can you educate players during their playing careers to see coaching as an option it would be interesting if you surveyed all the WSL players and thought have you ever thought about coaching some of it it may not even be on their radar right that's all we've got time for thank you very much to Charlotte and Chloe yeah thanks so thanks Sophie Please also rate and review the show when you get a chance and click follow on your podcast feed. To submit a question, email me on fte at theathletic.com or message us on at theathleticfc on Twitter and Instagram. Until next week, bye-bye.
You've been listening to Full Time Europe, part of the Athletic Football Podcast Network. The producer was Sophie Penny and the executive producer was Abby Patterson. To discover and listen to other great athletic podcasts just like this one, including our brand new daily football briefing, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.